This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Monica Perez here with Jeremy Kuzmarov, the managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. You've heard him here before. We love to hear all his research, all his writing. He tells us about it. Uh, in real time. Thank you so much. I should tell people to strap on their tanks because we are going deep with the dive master. <laughs> but we've, they know that because they know you. How are you, Jeremy? I'm pretty good. How are you? Fine, thank you. So you're in New York, right? Mm -hmm. Because you guys are doing a fundraiser. Correct. Yeah, we have a fundraiser uh, for anyone who's in New York City. Uh, we'll be at the People's Forum <coughs> from 5.30 to 9.30 on Thursday, December 1st. And you can also tune in online through live stream. And you can check out yeah, uh, www.covertactionmagazine.com. You can get all the information uh, about the speakers and, and the event, as well as all, you know, all the usual array of articles uh, we publish. So this actually is an opportunity for me to ask you a little bit about the history of Covert Action Magazine, because A, I've been reading today, the article is so long, normally I can keep up on all your articles, but the one about Jonestown was comprehensive, and boy, did I fall down rabbit hole after rabbit hole about the um, Moscone and Milk assassinations, Leo Ryan, because this is part of a series that you have done on assassinations. And it all reminds me of the kind of gonzo reporting, I guess, gonzo journalism from the 60s and 70s where, you know, people on the left were really cracking open some of the deep, dark secrets of the deep state. And now it seems like some of that tradition has been lost. Some people who are just political agnostics have picked it up. But now it gets so mired in what I think is disinformation, false conspiracy theories. It's hard to tell a real source from a planted source. But you seem to follow in that tradition of you have a little more of a truth dar. And I just wondered, like, how, you know, what was the story with covert action? Either if you know the early history and who, where is most of your funding coming from now? You know, how do you keep that tradition going and, and keep it pure? Well, yeah, Covert Action Magazine was founded by CIA whistleblower Philip Agee, who wrote the book uh, Inside the Company, which was a kind of tell-all uh, account of his life in the CIA. And, you know, he had grown disillusioned. He had worked in the CIA in Ecuador and um, in Uruguay, in Mexico, uh, and possibly Panama. Uh, and he just grew, you know, disillusioned with the CIA. He felt that they were carrying out you know, criminal activities. They were supporting right-wing coups uh, through all kinds of illegal methods. Uh, they were involved in torture. I think the turning point for him was uh, he was in Uruguay and he recounts this meeting. He's meeting with the police chief uh, and some internal security officials and he hears some screams in the next room. And like the police chief is like, oh, turn up the radio. And you know, I didn't want to hear the scream. And I think AG put two and two together that this was somebody he had helped to finger in you know, part of the blacklist they were developing. And he was a suspected communist. And now he was being tortured. And I guess, you know, his conscience 
Uh, he was a man of conscience, and that got to him. So he quit the CIA, and he was also in Mexico when the uh, Mexican government carried out a massacre of <coughs> left-wing uh, protesters in 1968. So he resigned from the agency, and he wrote a, an expose of his nefarious activities inside the company, and then he was hunted by the agency, and he lived in Europe uh, and ended up settling in Cuba. But he helped found, and he founded Covert Action Magazine with a journalist named Lou Wolf, who's still active and uh, supporting the magazine. And the purpose was to expose the crimes of the CIA. And they had a naming names column where they would actually out CIA agents. Although they uh, drew on public information, they never disclosed any classified information. Uh, they drew on public sources to uh, out CIA agents. And they felt it was important to name the names because they felt it was a, cr a criminal conspiracy uh, against the U.S. Constitution and that these were criminals uh, who had to be named. Uh, and, um, you know, that's how the magazine started. And then it broadened into, uh, you know, uh, it continued its focus on exposing the CIA and covert activity, but it broadened into a magazine that pre uh, presented critiques of U.S. foreign policy and, the political and analyzed the political economic dimension of U.S. imperialism. Because Philip Agee yeah, was very good in analyzing. I, I think he went beyond a lot of the whistleblowers today, even Edward Snowden, in looking at the economic imperative driving U.S. imperialism and the role of corp, you know, corporate capital, corporations and capitalism uh, in driving U.S. Uh, interference in third world nations and around the world. So the magazine today uh, has a strong focus in uh, analyzing the political economic dimension of U.S. empire and the economic forces that drive uh, the endless wars and endless interference and, and covert manipulation in foreign lands. So that kind of uh, expose would have a lot of big money behind preventing that kind of exposure. Who pays for your operations is there any big money behind that or do you actually count on just every little person because there's a lot of competition for you know five and ten bucks yeah well we're trying to you know build up our resources at this time uh you know we're a small operation right now operating a kind of on a shoestring so any support we can get is most welcome and yeah we're trying to get you know small donations you know we rely ma mainly on small donations uh from readers and subscriptions uh, to keep us going uh, because, yeah, we don't want to take money from large you know, corporations or advertisers that would compromise our mission. So, And it can happen, yeah, you have somebody who wants to donate a lot of money, but they have a certain political agenda, and we're, you know, in, we want to maintain our independence. I'm looking at the people who are involved in your fundraiser, including Ava Bartlett, who I know a lot of people know because of her outspoken um, – work against many things in Syria, Ukraine, you know, stuff that would draw a lot of ire from the powers that be. Are, is that going, are people actually going to be there? Are these people going to be there? Or are they, are some people uh, online? Because I, she's not usually even in the U.S., I thought. Yeah, she lives, uh, some of these people are going to be coming in through uh, Zoom or they're going to be recording video statements. So Bartlett, yeah, lives in Ukraine. Actually, yeah, she's been writing some articles for us. Uh, from uh, Eastern Ukraine, you know, giving the perspective of the people. And yeah, she's really a great writer. Yeah, I would, I would uh, urge uh, viewers uh, to uh, listeners to uh, consult her writings because she presents, you know, the human side of the conflict, 
and the, the perspective of, of the people of Eastern Ukraine that has been totally absent in all the media. And that's one thing we also hope to do at Covert Action, present more voices you know, from around the world as to you know, how people are impacted by military interventions or covert uh, interventions of the United States. And so she, so if we were to plug in online, we would be able to see what she had to say on Thursday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then for donations, if people want to donate, I can see you can buy tickets here for actually showing up. This is on West 37th street in Manhattan. But if you were going to just hook up online, I guess you can just donate at covertactionmagazine.com. Correct. Yeah. If you go uh, to the, um, uh, on the website, you'll find how to subscribe to the magazine or donate. And any donation is, is much appreciated. Is there still a print magazine? No, uh, right, the print okay. magazine, yeah, went out. Uh, well, Philip Agee died, I think, in 2008 or 2009, and that's around the time the magazine folded. But then it was restarted as a webzine by Chris Agee, who's Philip Agee's son, uh, a couple years ago. And then I was hired. Uh, and since I was hired, we've uh, begun to put out a lot more articles. And, uh, yeah, we put out about five or six new articles per week. And hopefully we'll be able to expand their operations in the future. How did they? How did you meet those guys? Uh, well, I had a background in, in academia, and I did a study of clandestine police training in the Cold War. And I oh, your up, books, probably, yeah, yeah. And uh, I they were looking for an editor, and I had worked in higher education, but the climate in higher education has <laughs> gotten really bad, and, and <laughs> there are very few bad. jobs uh, available. I mean, most. Uh, I think like 70% of faculty are now adjuncts. The only jobs available um, mainly are like part-time adjunct where you can make more money working at McDonald's. And And you don't have tenure, so you don't have the protection. And combined with kind of topics I cover and research I've done, I'm like persona non grata, I think, in academia these days in the new McCarthy era. So, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) They even have like a house – they have a – Chuck Schumer runs in Congress the C C I U S A or something. It's like they screen who can invest in the U.S. and who who the U.S. can invest in abroad. But it, it sounded it smacked very House on American activities to me. But mm-hmm. I mean that there's no the the left and the right. You can't you can't look to either side for protection. So, oh, I did want to say about Ava Bartlett is that it's really, really hard to get a good perspective on what's going on in Ukraine, like even the stuff that you might think. Even I find if you go to RT, it's just fluffy or cursory. Like I just don't, I really don't get what I want from them. It's usually just some sensationalistic, uh, you know, I love Sergei Lavrov because I think he's hilarious and (laughs) totally combative. But it's usually just, you know, he said, you're lying, whatever. But uh, the more in-depth stuff, I I think she's just, nobody compares with her. So that's awesome. And I was super psyched to see her on covertactionmagazine.com. And I did want to, I know this is going backwards, but I want to talk about this Jonestown article that you wrote. It's really comprehensive. And I was thinking, okay, this is an assassination thing. Is it about the assassination of the 900 people who were there? Is it about the assassination of Jim Jones, who I think probably faked his own death and then was rubbed out afterwards, which you kind of 
um, said was a possibility in the article or quoted someone who thought that was a possibility. Was it about Moscone? Was it about milk? Was it about um, who else? Other people were, I, I mean, in just reading this, how many people died? Of course, Leo Ryan is probably who it's actually about. Um, so I just, I didn't know how much evidence there was that the Jonestown thing was like CIA from the start, that Jim Jones himself was probably CIA from the start, from before even they went to that California base. The idea of um, what I, one thing I gleaned from your article is that, and this was so obvious, but I just hadn't thought about it this way. When people talk about MK Ultra, they think about mind control, about training assassins, spies, stuff like that, sex slaves. But as soon as you made the connection with Jonestown, I was thinking, oh, obviously the real purpose of MKUltra would be how to control groups, how to control society, how to use drugs. And that folded into a Charles Manson book I read recently. I mean, it just cracked so much wide open. So if you want to give us an overview and then I can pick it apart on those points for the, to the extent we have time, I would love that. Sure. Well, yeah, this is really a, a crazy story where, yeah, truth is much uh, stranger than than fiction uh, or even the imagination. I mean, firstly, yeah, it's clear that the I mean, the the official story is that these people were misled by cult leader Jim Jones and that he induced them all to commit suicide and drink the Kool-Aid. And we have that expression, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid. But it appears that that is, uh, is not the true story, that they were all, most of them were murdered, if not all of them were murdered. And that was corroborated by uh, reports of the, the doctors and the forensic analysis that came uh, afterward. And it found, you know, they had been, uh, you know, they had needle marks in the back in places that, that you, you couldn't uh, shoot yourself. Uh, and there were people who were gunned down uh, and, and there was evidence that they had been held down and injected uh, with poison. And yeah, it seems, well, Leo Ryan was investigating, I mean, uh, one of the um, motives, well, well, firstly, yeah, I mean, and then you have to know what Jonestown was, like, it was, I mean, uh, Jones himself, yeah, so Jim Jones was this um, gifted preacher who, uh, he claimed to bring people from the dead and carried out healings, uh, he was kind of really a con man, uh, he was a very uh, charismatic individual, and he had built a following in, in Indianapolis where he started out, and then he moved to California. Uh, but it appears uh, and set up the People's Temple in Berkeley, California, and he attracted, you know, it was a multiracial congregation, and he attracted a lot of idealist types and many people who had been in the counterculture and involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement and civil rights movement. And he presented himself as like a leftist, uh, who was very active in all these social movements uh, that were persisting into the 70s. But that was really a cover. From early days, it's clear he had been uh, an agent of the CIA and possibly FBI. He was spotted at some meeting, you know, political meeting in the 50s. You know, Indianapolis was a very conservative city. Uh, uh, and I think he was at some communist meeting, but it was believed he was an informant in the communist movement. And then he was, uh, he went to, he spent some time in South America and he was in Brazil and Guyana. And uh, it was very clear he was working for the CIA. You know, he had the cover that he was working like laundromat business uh, and a couple other covers, but the people who knew him there and worked for him say 
uh, that he was a CIA. That yeah, he would go early. Like he lived in a very upscale. He was put up in a very upscale neighborhood, and he would leave early in the morning with a briefcase. And uh, you know, he seemed to be uh, in, in some very elite circles when he was there. Um, and he was basically out as a CIA agent by officials and in the media at the time when he was there. And in Guyana, yeah, he was involved in inciting racial riots because Guyana, after they got their independence, and that's where Jonestown was set up, they got their independence. They were run by uh, Chedi Jagan, who was a socialist, who was more aligned Guyana with Cuba and Castro. And the CIA uh, was involved in, in regime change to bring in Forbes Burnham, who was an Afro-Guyanese, uh, but he was you know, doing the bidding more of the CIA. And Jones facilitated these black race riots because Jagan was an Indian. There's you know, fissure between the black and Indian population in Guyana. And uh, Jones was supporting uh, black uh, riots uh, and, and involved in, in bringing into power Fort Burnham when he was working for the CIA. And then Burnham supported Jonestown. Uh, so, you know, uh, Jones set himself up in Berkeley with the People's Temple and was attracting all these, um, you know, people from the counterculture and um, 60s idealists as well as a lot of black congregants. And then he set up this like utopian community in Guyana, but it was sanctioned by the Fort Burnham government that the CIA helped to install and it was being used as a cover like for training mercenaries. Uh, for the CIA, some of whom went into Angola, and also for MK Ultra experiment. Like after the Jonestown massacre, they found all kinds of pharmaceuticals, including uh, the types of drugs that were used in the MK Ultra to try and you know brainwash people and uh, sedate them. Uh, you know, because they were looking for like a truth drug, you know, an interrogation. And actually, uh, it's believed that like the CIA had shut down MK Ultra, which was doing a you know, drug experimentation for the purpose of the Cold War uh, on how to you know manipulate and brainwash people in interrogation. And that it was officially shut down, but it was believed that it went to religious cults after, and that Jones helped to administer MK Ultra in Jonestown. And you know, he was a master manipulator, so. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, so, yeah, his original thing was that he was bringing races together, right? He really appealed to black communities wherever he went. Yeah. And, and then one thing I noticed is that he, he was freaking people out. They were, he was talking about a coming race war. He was talking about um, scaring people about nuclear weapons. And I thought that was a weird parallel with today where we're, we're in a constant state of terror. They are terrorizing us. They are actually doing things that are terrible. They're locking people down. They're separating us from our families. They're putting people in hospitals and, or they have been not letting you visit them. I mean, these are, these are actually oppressive practices that are freaking people out. But then you'll see that there's a whole nother layer of stuff that scares me that I think is true is 
also pumped up by the media. Like even if it's not the mainstream media, the alternative media definitely serves this purpose of creating subcultures that are um, hypersensitive or uh, to what's going on or who are um, polarizing society. It sounds like he used those tactics and that what they were doing when you said the MK Ultra moved from that kind of train and assassin truth serum thing to go underground and into cults and all that, that seems to me like a transition from when it went from the individual to the group and that the the group is what they really must have cared about above all things because you can probably just find assassins. You don't really need to mind control people for that. Even Manchurian candidates, you don't really need to mind control. You can just find a good actor. But for my mind control for a lot of people, and that's where it came, there were 900 people there and there were tens of thousands of doses of things like Quaaludes, Valium, stuff that I would imagine, and I know in Haight-Ashbury, I know Jolly West, I know the Charles Manson stuff, they were working on, I mean, they, I think they handed out millions of doses of acid. They were definitely studying how these drugs had an effect on groups, how it could create people who would drop out of society. Now it sounds like he was uh, provoking riots. You could then turn them. And of course, Manson's thing, whatever really happened there was definitely that it took a violent turn from somebody who was supposed to be leftist and loving. That was the draw. And then it turned them to violence. It seems like there's a lot of application to the things that they were studying. And I would also just add that apparently it looked like it was common knowledge or undisputed that that site where Jonestown was had originally been a CIA kind of mercenary training ground, that that is not like a conspiracy theory. That is actually true. And the last thing I would say is, is that Indian guy, uh, it seemed like he was going to be a competent leader and not, not super corrupt that the head, I forget the name of the Chetty yeah, Chetty Dagan, yeah. And yeah. then his wife later became a president years later, and Arthur Schlesinger Jr., because the Kennedy administration was behind the coup, uh, as well as the Johnson administration. But Arthur Schlesinger Jr. had been a top aide to Kennedy, yeah, admitted like years later, I think after Dagan had died in the late 90s, that this was you know a, a major, uh, well, I think he used the word mistake, but it was really an atrocity yeah, to overthrow like Chetty Jagan was very well educated. He was a doctor. Uh, his wife Janet Jagan was actually had been an American leftist, but they were a very well educated couple and uh, you know very forward thinking and yeah very honest. And you know in hindsight, her beloved uh, compared to Fort Burnham, who was extraordinarily corrupt uh, and you know I think it ruined Guyana's economy when he came in and after he came in, he misruled the country like a lot of U.S. client leaders do. So it was a disaster for the country. I want to ask you, I always like to get to the big picture stuff, um, especially because I like to establish common ground with us because I come from like, you know, libertarian anarchist kind of bent and you come from the left. When you say that he was a leftist, is that, do you, you know, that just makes people think he was a communist. Do you think that that's, you know, equivalent? Do you care? Like, what's no, the difference? I think he was more of a social democrat. I don't. Uh, I think his wife. Uh, I, I. I'm not sure if she was ever a member of the American Communist Party. She may have been more like a fellow traveler. But no, I don't think he was a communist. He was not a Castroite. He was more of a social democrat. 
and the um, CIA overthrew a number of social democratic regimes in Latin America in this time. Like in Brazil, Jim Jones was involved in the coup against Raul Goulart, who was also a social democrat, more like a Lula type leader, who was more independent, you know, uh, and more on the left, like more like kind of New Deal type liberal, uh, or, you know, embracing some socialist ideal, but not a Marxist Leninist who would move toward a one party state. Uh, no, Jagan was not that. So uh, another thing I wanted to just point out, two, two more things. One is, would you say he was anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist? And I wanted to fold into that the extent to which the history of a country plays into your sympathy for those, those approaches. So I try, you know, I find myself... Um, not really comfortable judging, uh, you know, South American country or even Europe for their socialism because I look at okay, if they had feudalism, let's take Europe. They have feudalism, and I think the enclosure era made a big difference there. So I'm definitely missing a big chunk of the progression. But say they had feudalism and um, the uh, they absorbed all the land at the top through unjust means in a small place like England. And then you have a lot of people who were dispossessed, went into the Industrial Revolution, and then they come out, and there is no land for them to get back again. They didn't accumulate any wealth because, like in the enclosure thing, I think they were basically, if I'm not mistaken, kind of robbed of their birthright land. Like they were on land, however you talk about the ownership, but then they were they no longer had that historically. And then you have a problem where you have a lot of disenfranchised people or whatever, unlanded people, and they feel like it was unfair. And then they turn to something like socialism where it says, okay, we're not going to get our actual title to land back or actual opportunities to participate fairly. Um, and we want, then we have to just do it collectively, that it's possible that that's kind of thing. So I try not to be too judgmental about these other countries. And I mean, do you feel like he was in good faith doing the right thing or guys like that in uh, doing the right thing for? the people, especially during that era, because it's really hard for us who hate communism to look back at the anti-communist movements that were violent and full of CIA stuff and spies and illegal and all of that. You know, it, it's like a, you feel conflicted. Yeah, well, I mean, Latin America has the highest inequality even today, highest inequality levels uh, anywhere in the world. So I think it's, it's a natural place where socialist ideals have taken root. And, you know, they've been dominated by the United States uh, after, you know, the Spanish colonial era. You had the Monroe Doctrine and you have, uh, have had very heavy handed U.S. interventions uh, for well over a century. And U.S. You know, corporate uh, penetration and influence uh, has often been very nefarious. So, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it's a it's a ripe breeding ground for left wing socialist uh, and even Marxist uh, ideologies. Uh, given the, in part the pernicious influence of U.S. imperialism, U.S. corporations, and contributing to their underdevelopment. I mean, there was a great book by um, Eduardo Galliano called Open Veins of Latin America. And I mean, uh, so, I mean, for them, given the you know, corporate penetration and plunder of their natural resources, a socialist model like the Venezuelan government has adopted today of nationalizing their industry and placing under national control uh, makes a lot of sense uh, from their point of view. And leader like Jagan, I think, followed in that trajectory. But again, I think he was more of a social democrat right. than a Marxist-Leninist. Uh, so, 
So uh, in a lot, in yeah, a lot it, of these it, cases, distinguish yeah. the, the, between the two. Uh, in the you know mindset of the Cold War and a lot of the leaders, any any leader that was more left of center and pushed for more independent course for their country uh, was subjected to, and that's why Philip Agee quit the CIA and, and became whistleblower because he saw that they were overthrowing legally elected governments, many of which were maybe styled after the New Deal uh, in the United States, and they were being subjected to. Uh, regime change operations, as well as the Castro, uh, you know, uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba. Uh, so, and yeah, Jones was, was part of that. And the Jonestown was, was all linked in with U.S. Cold War foreign policy. Uh, and yeah, it may have been a place to do all kinds of unethical experiments. Uh, and that's what led to its undoing. When this congressman, Leo Ryan, came, he was investigating. He had promoted the Hughes-Ryan Amendment to reform the CIA and provide much more oversight for its operations. And it was in his district, you know, he was being told story. There were, you know, whistleblowers and, and people who left. Uh, the Jonestown and the People's Temple who were telling him and giving him documentation of criminal activity by Jones, the you know, arms smuggling. There were murder. There are a number of murders uh, of people who left the People's Temple or fell afoul of Jones. Uh, it, it seemed Jones may have been behind the murder. And it was all kind of nefarious and criminal activity. So Ryan got wind of this report from his constituents and he went down to investigate. And then he was murdered. And that, you know, set off. He was lured. He was yeah, lured. He, yeah. That's he what was, one well, of the he, things that he was lured he was down there. To like, expose it. Yeah. No, and but Leighton didn't, it, the, one of the, there is, in your article, it says that the Leighton family, Lawrence Laird Leighton, I think the guy's name was, that yeah. he, that it's suspected, I don't know if you think this is true or not, and he certainly gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Jonestown that he was behind it as the experiment and that his kids and his wife, some of whom died or supposedly died, um, one of whom went to jail for shooting Leo Ryan, I think, that the sister uh, actually met with Leo Ryan ahead of time and and asked him to go down there. And it was her brother who killed him, who shot, one of the people shot him, and this guy uh, had bankrolled the thing. So that was highly suspicious. Yeah, the Leighton family on this whole twisted tale, uh, they're a key family. And the father was head of the Army Chemical Warfare Branch uh, and was a very noted uh, researcher uh, uh, you know, in you know, military science who had developed uh, uh, you know, various uh, chemical warfare weapons and was a, a champion of chemical warfare weapons. And their mother... Uh, had escaped from Nazi Germany, although she had presented a cover story that she was Jewish, but actually her family were Nazis. And one of the leading researchers on this topic named Michael Myers sees this whole experiment as part of like the Nazification of America and the national security establishment because like the MK Ultra type experiment, I mean, that's right out of Nazi Germany with their experiment, uh, experiment doing medical experiments on unwitting victims and trying to develop drugs. Uh, artichoke, right? Use. Artichoke? Yeah. And, you know, drugs uh, that could be used for military purposes. I mean, either kind of thing the Nazis did. And there were Nazis, you know, recruited under the Operation uh, Paperclip. Um, so, but Leighton, yeah, you know, may have been the mastermind and provided a lot of the revenue. And then, yeah, his daughter, Debbie Leighton, uh, was a, a, a prime, like, financial advisor to Jones. And she may have gotten away with a lot of the money because they – Jones had amassed 
over a billion dollars. A lot of it in offshore was being stored in offshore banks. Uh, and, you know, Debbie Layton got out before the killings. And then, you know, she wrote this kind of sob story that her family had been a victim, but is believed that, you know, she became a player in the financial world in, in San Francisco and is believed that she may have gotten off with uh, that huge fortune that Jones had stored. Uh, so, you know, the mother died of cancer, like, I think just before, just after, but De Debbie Lighton got out. And actually, yeah, she had been married to this uh, British guy named Phil Blakey, who believed connected to British MI6, and he was involved in the mercenary training, uh, which is documented and acknowledged by various CIA operatives like Frank Turple, that they were carrying out mercenary training there, and it was her husband. But, yeah, she may have gotten away with the fortune. It's unclear what happened to Jones. Yeah, he may have faked his own death and escaped to Brazil, it's uncertain what happened to him. Uh, so, but yeah, that family was, was integrally involved. Uh, and it, it stemmed from the, the father who was involved with a very high level of the U S military, you know, chemical warfare and biological warfare programs. We have a couple of comments. I wanted to just address them. If you don't mind, I think I, Stuart says the U S has highest inequalities in the world. I must be more naive than I realized. Didn't I thought you said that South oh. America had that? Um, I don't know. I, maybe he's right. I have to look it up. But I, I know that Latin America historically has had very, very high inequality levels. I don't know. I think he thought you said the U.S. and you actually said South America, Latin America, correct? Yeah, I, I believe point, yeah. in South America. I, I mean, to my knowledge, the U.S. hasn't eclipsed it, although the U.S. obviously has very high levels now. But uh, I know historically Latin America is huge. I think level. I think the U.S. does have insanely high levels of inequality, but it's because we have so many billionaires, and that I would say that our poor are not as poor. There's I I I mean yeah. you and I will probably disagree with this, but I don't I really don't think that you know the system is is there and people can access it. So I feel like there's an encouragement to have poverty, to have homelessness, to have drug addiction, to have mental illness that where people cannot access either opportunity or help. And then you have on the other hand this incredible wealthy class which is I would say only possible in a highly regulated environment, in a highly taxed environment where you can cordon off that very, very high thing. And if you have highly progressive tax rates, the professional class doesn't really bridge that gap. It's not a straight line. It's like a step function and the top is teeny tiny. So I think if you just want to talk about inequality, you could say that the U.S., I mean, it's possible that the U.S. is most unequal, but I think as far as the most abject poverty compared to how I mean, I've, I spent, I've been to Peru a few times and the people in like the political class, they live in gated communities yeah, that, exactly. you know, they have old money, they have old, like a lot of art and stuff inside their house, but it's seriously gated. They have their own security and there was only one hotel or one neighborhood that, that we were told it would be safe to stay in. People get robbed and beaten on their ATM machines and stuff. Like there's a serious problem there. I think that that clarifies, yeah. but um, exactly. Also, Sarah says that the European countries that embraced socialism, which I was talking about earlier, were also largely the same countries that colonized South America, which did the same. So that's interesting that it is that feudalism, colonialism, mercantilism that leads to corporatism and wealth inequality. Again, these are not free market concepts. So, you know, this is what drives me crazy is that we, that the left and right, 
come in these big baskets where to be anti-imperialist and anti-globalist as I am, a lot of those talking points are the same as people from the left who feel like an ideology of social democracy is totally fine. And I think laissez-faire capitalism and libertarianism is the right ideology. But I think we both object to the fact that the corpo governmental continuum at the top that is now basically encircling the world is responsible for a lot of the injustice at the bottom, regardless of what the answer might be. And I would say the answer is to uh, to get rid of that stuff, get rid of the privileges and the power that come with that stuff that are covert, that are actually illegal. You don't even need law and policy change. What you need is the transparency that like Leo Ryan was trying to establish. And did that Hughes-Ryan amendment actually pass and become law? Uh, yeah, it did pass. Uh, what ha- and that was around the time of the church committee hearings. Uh, when uh, you know church was uh, you know set up this committee basically to expose uh, you know some nefarious activities of the CIA, including assassination efforts uh, you know in Cuba against Castro and others, uh, and so there was a wave of, of um, reformist legislation that came out around that time period, and there was momentum to kind of rein in the deep state and CIA, but unfortunately it was kind of short lived. Yeah. You know, Ryan was uh, assassinated and uh, the kind of deep state fought back and was able to counteract a lot of the legislation that came about because of the church hearings and and grew much more powerful. I mean, they did establish like an oversight body in the Senate, the Senate Intelligence Committee after the church hearing, but they were able to staff it with kind of yes men and they really didn't actually scrutinize, like including Joe Biden. And they, you know, he was on that committee for a while, and they didn't actually really scrutinize what the CIA was doing. And then they passed new laws uh, that made it even a crime to uh, expose a CIA agent or reveal classified information, and, and much harsher laws uh, that basically uh, enabled them to protect their secrecy. And gradually, like Reagan and subsequent administration, kind of re-empowered the the CIA. So, and the um, NSA doesn't. It doesn't have the same restrictions. So the Hughes, if I understand correctly, the Hughes-Ryan Amendment made it so that you could you, CIA had to get approval for covert action and then come back and account for how they spent the money. And I f- I've felt for a while that the transition, that the NSA was kind of taking over from the CIA, and that's why they could now let like pot be legal and stuff because they did not need that source of black money. That's when the CIA started needing black money, from what I understand. But the NSA gets a check. They don't have to account, itemize, account for it like that. I, I always felt like that, or I suspected that that's what was happening when they changed the pot laws and that when the NSA became so powerful. Yeah, well, that, that's a good point. Yeah, I think it, it just pushed the CIA more underground. I think they had already built up the capability to raise their own revenue, some of it through illegal activity like drug drug trafficking or you know setting up front companies uh, where they could launder money. And I think that became intensified after, as you point out, that new legislation came in place that kind of went more underground. Just like what I was saying with the MK Ultra, that was also shut down because that was exposed in the church hearing. And there was general outrage. You know, at that time with the Vietnam War going on, the popular momentum was toward reining in uh, these abusive organizations. Uh, so they, and there was a response and they cut off MK Ultra. 
but then they moved it more underground, these religious cults, and that's what Jonestown was all about, under the cover of this kind of hippie uh, movement uh, that was going to establish this utopian community. They're really using it as a way to promote you know, mind control testing, and, and Jones was himself a master manipulator, so he was the perfect person and i think you're right they were probably testing like uh things like mass psychology and how can we get people to do certain things as a group uh rather than just kind of trying to train an assassin so and he also was doing uh, experimenting with ethnic diseases is that not correct there is some evidence of that they may have been trying to uh yeah i mean because i i think yeah he had this the cover was that he was a champion of civil rights and he would even stage attacks on his church to play up this idea of a race war coming and to make like he was a victim of the Ku Klux Klan, like he had used this trick back in Indianapolis and it kind of boosted his persona as a champion of black rights. But yeah, some of the testing may have been to actually, you know, because I think they were testing ways to neuter, you know, radical social movements. And if you get into it, I mean, like with the LSD, that's what that may have been all about. Like Timothy Leary, there are suspicions about him because, you know, he was pushing LSD and he was pushing young people who had been mobilized politically and could have developed like in the 60s, like the Students for Democratic Society could have developed into a powerful independent political movement or possibly an arm uh, of the Democratic Party that would have pushed it into more progressive policies, you know, more anti-imperialist, uh, anti-war policies and, you know, reducing the military budget. But instead you had these false messiah like Timothy Leary was calling on young people to tune on, turn in and drop out, you know, just drop out of the system and take, take drugs. And, you know, the, the hippies, you know, a lot of them kind of removed themselves from the political system. They just went off and lived on commune and took acid and, uh, you know, at rock and roll. And it was kind of, you know, cultural rebellion. But I think that pleased like the CIA and the power that be because they weren't mobilizing people politically uh, to change the system and to, you know, to transform U.S. foreign policy in a more humane way. So that whole you know, pump pushing LSD and drugs on the young people, that may have come from the CIA. And Jonestown may have been continue, continuation of that, experimenting with new mind control techniques and, and ways to pacify the radical black movement or the radical coming together of, of, of white and black uh, on the left. So, um, and, and yeah, again, the, the cover, like they, they played up, they tried to make it seem like he had connection with Cuba and, and Russia, but actually he was a CIA agent and worked for the CIA. And that's actually quite well documented. And I, I forgot to mention, he was close with this guy named Dan Mitrione, who was a CIA agent who was killed in Uruguay, or believed to have been killed, working in the CIA police training programs. And they had known each other back in Indiana, and they worked together in Brazil. Mitrione was trained the police and was a CIA agent in Brazil, and they lived very close to each other and uh, were close in Brazil, and they had gone all, all the way back together in, in Indiana. So I, I noticed numerous parallels between what he was doing, what Jones was doing, and Manson in that they brought a lot of race stuff into it. There were drugs into it. It was about control. It was about charisma. And and they had connections with the CIA uh, psychiatrists and stuff, but they also were pictured oftentimes or had connections with famous people. I mean, Charles Manson had that like extensive relationship 
with one of the Beach Boys, um, with Doris Day's son. Um, I don't know if Angela Lansbury's son was involved at that point either, but like a lot of weird stuff like that. And when you look at Jim Jones, you see pictures of him with uh, Huey, Huey Newton, I think, and um, other famous people. I think there's one where Walter Mondale is in the background of a picture with him. I mean, what do you make of their, of the connections at those highest levels? Was that, do you believe to give them credibility? Do you think, uh, you know, I just, I can't understand why they would have such a high profile. Well, I think uh, two things. Uh, yeah. One, uh, uh, the connection with Manson, I think there was a concerted campaign by the CIA and the so-called deep state to discredit the sixties movements. And uh, Manson had connections with the CIA, I believe. Uh, and this, you know, was the end of the sixties, you know, that w what was an idealistic movement to transform American society and to challenge uh, the dominant, you know, materialism uh, of U.S. society and, and transform the political economic structure. Uh, yeah, it kind of descended into this madness of drugs and all these excesses, and that may have been by design. And then Manson, you know, in the popular image, you link Manson with the wayward, you know, hippie children, and they go out and commit murder. Uh, and the 60s all movements all of a sudden take on a very, very negative connotation. And I think that's what the deep state wanted. And the same thing with Jonestown. You have all these idealistic people who gravitate to a Jones who in theory is trying to bring together black and white and is you know, championing all these social justice causes. Uh, but really, he's working for the CIA. And in the official story, you know, he brings them to Guyana and he's just a cult leader and he gets them to commit suicide. And that becomes a metaphor for the, the kind of gullibility uh, of people in the 60s movements. Uh, and that, you know, these people uh, just kind of drank the Kool-Aid. And then these movements were really sour. You know, their heroes were people like Jones, who were just charlatans uh, and led them, uh, you know, to, to their own destruction. Uh, so I, I think that, that there's a connection there. And they played up his connection again with Cuba and Russia. Uh, to give him these bona fides as a man on the left. And it was oh, all yes. okay. to discredit those movements. And then they had nothing. I mean, that was one institution that people on the left could gravitate, you know, in the Berkeley community and the counterculture. Here's a religious institution that they could join, you know. And, I mean, it was mostly atheistic, the 60s movement kind of rejection of religion. But here, oh, here's a religion that, you know, is trying to channel the energy of those activist movements, but that that leads astray, you know, and 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 and, and that is ultimately uh, you know shown to be something very very negative. So there, there's no institutions left for them to join, and everything associated with this movement is negative. So I think that was all set up in that way. Uh, I mean, it looks to be that way based on the evidence. There, there was two uh, so. things I noticed. Uh, in reading this one is yes, that they set these things up and used it to discredit these ideologies. And maybe he took a picture with Huey Newton to discredit him. You know, I, that is quite possible. But then there's another element there that was just mentioned in passing in your article about fostering or promoting communalism as an alternative to communism. And that came up in something else I was reading. I was looking into this Vatican-CIA connection. I Maybe someday we should talk about that if you ever did an article about that. I couldn't really get to the bottom of it. But one of the things, because you see people like Pope Francis supposedly had these kind of intelligence connections or something weird going on in South America. He was disliked and considered maybe corrupt or whatever. And 
Uh, but in my mind, he was always kind of a socialist. And in my research there, it came, or in some of the books I was reading, it said that they would try to actually institute socialism in places where communism was rising as kind of an alternative to communism. And I wondered if, or I would say as a warning to people, like beware that that uh, the schismatic stuff when people come in and, and have a radical departure from some more, you know, uh, easier to accept, more widely acceptable kind of resistance to descending tyranny, you know, we got to be careful. And I also feel like this idea of tuning in and checking out uh, on drugs or draft dodging, meaning you're leaving the country, these are all ways to truly disenfranchise people. And I see parallels with that. I really worry because I, I there's so much value in the homesteading movement and everything from the health benefits of preserved foods to um, the the benefits to the kids of getting them off screens. But I also always like people to remember, I think this is how they politically neutralize the boomer movement who would have, you know, the hippies and stuff who might have pushed back on this emerging corpo-governmental continuum that was getting so, so powerful. So I always like to tell people, like, remember to stay, you know, alert to changes in gun laws or water rights or when they come to kill your chickens and stuff, you've got to stay ahead of it. Don't let them, you know, don't totally tune out. I think it's called the Benedict option in, in Catholicism. It's like a little, you know, it it can backfire and these also, cults of personality are super dangerous. Always look at the ideology, see if these people are really living something that you consider is good values. Yeah, but in this case, I think it was all for show because the, the new left was formed as a new left it, you know, in the 60s. Uh, these were young people disillusioned by the Cold War and the arms race and then the Vietnam War, but they weren't attracted to traditional Marxist ideology or class way of thinking like uh, the old left in the 1930s. So that's why an ideology like communalism would have been attractive. That so. But this was all for show. You know, Joan was promoting an attractive idea, maybe alternative to Marxism, as a counterweight to consumer capitalism. But it's it's this is all a deep state operation to mislead these people uh, and and to carry out these unethical experiments, and then to try and discredit the whole '60s movement by tainting them with association with Jones and and with drinking the Kool Aid. So. I feel like uh, there's that kind of thing that goes on today. I feel like there are operations like this that are so. fomenting radicalism. Uh, and yeah. I don't know about the left, but certainly in the right. And I feel like it's a trap and they still do it. Yeah, there's a lot of manipulation that goes on. Yeah. And including, uh, you know, you could look like there's suspicion groups like Antifa or Black Lives Matter uh, that they've been infiltrated. And um, yeah, they, it's, it's, it's controlled. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, I, I do, I want to hit one more subject besides this one, which will only take us like a couple of minutes at the end, but the, uh, Mark Lane, Mark Lane is such a like confusing character to me. He wrote what I consider to be a, a good expose when it probably the first one on the Warren commission report or the JFK assassination. And I've just over the years, I've heard, oh, Mark Lane was an inside job, blah, blah, blah. But you seem to think he was legit. And because of his work on JFK, he was set up. So Mark Lane was a lawyer and author. And he was there from I just some, I, I was 
reading a lot of other stuff when I read your article, like I clicked through into everything. So I found places which said that he was there when Leo Ryan was assassinated, that he represented Jones, that he was aggressive towards Ryan. And I just wondered if, you know, what's your takeaway on, on Mark Lane? You think he was completely targeted to be discredited because of his integrity? Well, yeah, if this was a deep cover operation, that may have been a side benefit that they could uh, have because that ruined Lane's career. He was tainted by association with Joan because he was representing Jim Joan along with Charles Gary, who would represent the Black Panther Party. So it's like guilt by association. It ruined their reputation. And it's a way to discredit him and all the investigations he had done to uh, discredit the Warren Commission and his work on JFK because he had the JFK assassination and other exposés he had done about the deep state and corruption in government. So, yeah, this was all part of uh, the scene that seems to have worked. Well, there's certainly, I mean, I've read many times that they just love the multitask. They just absolutely adore it. If they're going to do some, some psyop, they are going to check as many boxes as they possibly can, and that's why they bring in yeah. multidisciplinary um, you know, experts on how to work this stuff. This is well thought out. Yeah. And this is, you know, I mean, it's having a, a major effect on public opinion, which is ultimately their goal. You know, it's discrediting the, the 60s movement, discrediting figure like Lane, who was a thorn inside the establishment because of uh, his investigations and work with, with Jim Garrison in, in exposing the corruption behind the JFK assassination. Uh, okay, so... One, one thing I wanted to just touch on, maybe two things, I want to refer people to two articles that you wrote that I found very interesting. Uh, this one article about Scott Barnes, who was a government operative, and he, I, I don't know if you interviewed him or what, but he said that it was the Clinton team that undermined Perot and set Perot against the GOP, thinking that it was the GOP that was undermining him, making Perot look paranoid and getting Clinton elected, I guess. So I refer people to that article. But the one thing I wanted you to comment on is another article about uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal. Is it Mumia or Mumia? Mumia, yeah. Mumia Abu-Jamal, who... I had never even heard of him yet. He's been in prison. He's in prison right now. He's been in prison for 40 years for killing a cop, even though there's overwhelming evidence that he did not do it. And, uh, and after having watched this documentary and I reviewed it on one of my websites, the thin blue line about how pervasive it is to have false testimony, false evidence, um, suppressed evidence, uh, on the part of DAs who want to rack up death penalty cases, but in this case, it went even further because this guy was a radio journalist and he was just, you know, in order to supplement his income, he was driving a cab and was at the scene after a cop was shot and then he himself was shot. What a, what a contorted tale that people will have to read the article. But when I read something like that, when you see people standing around, um, especially when he has, like, he took this name, he had I forget what his original name was, Cook, I think. Uh, you know, it's, there have been so many times where I have seen people defend or who are painted as defending terrorists, you know? So I, I would not normally have dug into a story like this, but your article was so compelling. Is there 
any doubt in your mind that he is innocent of this crime? Uh, well, yeah, and first to mention that the first article you mentioned, yes, yeah, shows a clear FBI interference uh, as admitted by an FBI whistleblower in the 92 election to yeah, discredit Ross Perot with all kinds of smears and, and to make like the Republican were, were spying on him so that they both look bad for the benefit of Bill Clinton. Uh, and we should be weary about these kind of behind-the-scenes manipulation. And as far as, yeah, Mumia Abu-Jamal, yeah, the, the evidence is very clear that uh, he was uh, innocent. Uh, the, the crime scene is, I think, impossible that uh, he could have carried out that crime. Uh, and there was so many problems with the trial and the witnesses. You know, a lot of the witnesses had been coerced, and they had been promised immunity. Some were prostitutes, and they were facing jail time, and, you know, and they had kids, and they were faced with the impossible decision to, to go along with the government and basically perjure their testimony so they could uh, be there for their kids. Otherwise, they were going to spend a long time in jail and not be able to uh, raise their kids. So, uh, And there are all kinds of other things from uh, evidence of payoffs in the case to just yeah, the crime scene evidence very clearly uh, contradicts the, the idea of Mumia uh, being the shooter. Uh, and yeah, I think, you know, there were, uh, you know, petty uh, uh, rivalries in place there and, and hatred for Mumia because he was a member of a group that was an offshoot of the Black Panther Party. And he was a DJ and he was very political, uh, political activist and a radical you know, black activist. So that's and why they, they would have wanted him to go down for this crime specifically, exactly. right? Exactly. Right, okay. Yeah. And, I mean, there's new evidence has come to light in the last couple of years, including of like threat of, uh, what appears to be payoffs to witnesses. And so they're hoping that that could allow for a new trial. But it seemed that the entire legal system is arrayed against Mumia, and they, uh, you know, they're very reluctant to, I guess, revisit this case, even though uh, independent researchers, yeah, and people who looked into it from the outside find the evidence overwhelmingly pointing to his innocence and injustice of him being on, uh, well, he was on death row because he, he wrote a book called Lie from Death Row. Yeah. You know, he became a celebrity and kind of spokesman for the movement for a more humane criminal justice system uh, after his book was published live from death row, which was about his experience on death row and how horrible it was, oh. especially for an innocent man. Right. And, you know, he's a very poignant writer. Uh, and he's written many books from behind bars. Yeah, he's an amazing guy, brilliant, you know, very bright uh, man of high intellect who's written numerous, you know, I don't know how many books, but um, I would say well over maybe five or ten books, uh, maybe more, uh, from prison, including uh, Alive from Death Row that he's best known for, which I read is very candid and, you know, uh, it's, a, it's really an outstanding book that, yeah, really heartfelt and you really feel his plight and feel the harshness of the criminal justice system, how they dehumanize people. Uh, and, you know, not everybody who's there is guilty. Right, for sure not. And I hate to taint his story, but regardless of what you think of Bill Cosby, the way that I think it's, I don't know if it's the same, but it's, it was in Pennsylvania, I believe it was in Philadelphia. I mean, just the rules were thrown out the window for political reasons. They wanted to take Bill Cosby down, not because of his treatment of women. And in my opinion, strong opinion on that. And I expected his thing to get overturned because it was wrong on so many levels, like just from a, a strictly legal point of view. And I just thought it was a coincidence that this was in the same neck of the woods that they're, you know, and, and similarly like a super corrupt judge and, uh, you know, a hanging judge. 
who didn't really care about justice seemed like to me. But um, I do encourage people to look into that because I, I and like with Ross Ulbricht, it just it just makes me sick when people are in jail who were not uh, treated according to the rules and laws of the criminal justice system. And when the process is violated, there is no hope. I mean, really, it's terrible. And that they can get away with that for 40 years. And I mean, even if he got out now, it wouldn't, it would, nothing can yeah. compensate a person for that. I know. I think he's quite sick now. He may have contracted COVID uh, and no. uh, you know, he's quite elderly. And it's similar now. And yeah, it's similar to the case like Leonard Peltier, who, if you look into it, which I've also looked into a little bit, we had some articles in Covert Action Magazine. You know, he was an American Indian activist uh, in face of the American Indian movement. And he was convicted of killing an FBI agent, but I think he claimed he wasn't even in the United States at the time. And there's strong evidence uh, that he was innocent, very strong evidence. So it seems to be another miscarriage of justice. And we seem to see this, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, there's a lot of overzealous prosecution and corruption or incompetence that we see when these important matters are being decided. Uh, it's really heartbreaking to see. Uh, it happens quite frequently. Well, yeah, as you're saying, yeah, Cosby might, I, I don't know. I haven't followed that case as oh, much. I followed it from the beginning. I know sometimes these yeah. Me Too cases like go too far the other way. I mean, I think that was a legitimate woman. There was a lot of sexual No, not, but not that like, particular but, woman. There was, yeah, there, but then sometimes it's, it's used for malicious prosecution to, yeah. to no, ruin people's lives. He used quaaludes to seduce women. He said, you know, want a quaalude? And they said, yes. <laughs> and then I'm not saying that that's okay, but that's what he did. But this particular woman was not, the reason they didn't prosecute him was that there was a witness who said he overheard her plotting to extort Bill Cosby. And I'm not saying that witness would have been credible, but he was denied the ability to call that witness. And that's another reason why you have statutory you know, statutes of limitations because you, maybe you can't find that witness anymore. So that was why it was never brought in the first place. And she uh, settled for money. And that's why he deposed, honestly, that he gave those chicks quaalude. And anyway, so I had a feeling it would be overturned. I mean, I was happy to find that it was, but he was in jail for a few years and I'm interested for his... He says such stupid things because he really does not seem like a very sympathetic character. But he also had experiences in there which enriched his political position, which he actually regretted some of the things he had said before. And I'm curious if he if he has anything left to lose, maybe he'll write something like that too. But I don't want to paint these people with the same brushes. They're all unique. But of course, I always call them sacrificial wolves. If you've got somebody like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby who do things that you have no sympathy for, you can abandon the process when it comes to them, set precedents that would really put innocent people in jail and nobody cares because they're wolves. So I always call them sacrificial wolves. I can't stand it. Um, this, but this reminded me of that because it seemed like uh, the same jurisdiction, or at least in that neck of the woods. So uh, the last thing I'll say is, I just love when I get to read your articles. I can justify spending the time, and um, and I, you know sometimes I wonder what is you know what's our hope? Why do we keep digging for the truth? Some of the stuff that you dig into is old, you know, and. But lots of people, millions of people, maybe billions of people have a hobby of reading history and have their bookshelves full of history books written by court historians, whatever, talk about it over tea or porter or beers. And 
no one seems to need to justify studying history. And when I read your history, because it is history, and it's so well documented, and it really reveals the truer nature of what we're dealing with today. I can't say for sure everybody wants to end with solutions. What do you do? Buy a chicken or go to a protest? I really don't know the solutions. But I do feel like to the extent history has any value whatsoever, it's uh it has the most value in stuff like this, which you do, which really uncovers some of the stories that we've been told that that can't be true. And and then you know the next kind of thing I want to go down rabbit hole I want to go down is the Moscone and Milk stuff, which I think ties into Diane Feinstein. I would love it if in your assassination series, and you you might turn around and say, "Well, you do it," but I'm going to ask you to do it. Uh, the Moscone and Milk thing. People say that was the Diane Feinstein kept losing elections until that happened, and then she was appointed by the Board of Supervisors to that spot. She was the one who announced it. Very fishy. Very fishy indeed. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I've started to look into that. I, yeah, I would like to do an article, but if if you could do one, that would be yeah. Great. No, I knew you were going to yeah, say that, you, but studied by Michael. Uh, by Michael Myers, who yeah. did a brilliant study of the Jonestown, and he was he was starting to get at that, and he was showing Jones's connection with Milk and Moscone, and he was starting to get into that in his study. Uh, so I, Is I would he like alive? to learn more about it. I heard he was. Uh, Maybe we just have to get him. Yeah, I, I heard that he lives somewhere in the Midwest. Well, in any uh, case, yeah, yeah I'll look into it. He's a brilliant it. researcher, and I, I think he may have had you know a lot of insider knowledge about the Jonestown. And, you know, my article drew a lot on his research and a couple other researchers. One is John Judge, who's no longer around, but oh. is a great researcher into yes. deep politics. He has a whole website that I think you linked to. Um, I believe it's called jonestown.sdsu.edu. Is, I think oh, yeah. Well, that's an entire website devoted to the Jonestown massacre yeah. and has all kinds of different articles and different perspectives. It's a very valuable resor resource for researchers or anyone interested in learning about the Jonestown yeah. and all the different intrigues and layers. And yeah, it's, it's hard to piece together the truth uh, all these years later, but it's um, the San Diego state university to their credit, jonestown.sdsu.edu. <laughs> but uh, the fantastic overview, which incorporates what I really could never have gotten through with each individual source is your article on this, which is fairly recent over the last month seems like to me roughly on covertactionmagazine.com and that's where people can go to see the fundraiser live which is Thursday at 5:30 Eastern and that's 2:30 Pacific so if they go to that covertactionmagazine.com at that time they can see that they can donate if they want to go if you're in Manhattan and you want to go you can buy tickets there um, I think you just click through at the homepage of the website for the invitation and tickets are, I think the cheapest ticket is $25, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. So anyway, that's super cool. Thank you, Jeremy. I know you're super busy and I really appreciate that you uh, stopped by, gave us some time. Do you want to plug anything else or add anything before we go? Uh, no, just, yeah. Uh, again, yeah, we could use the support, uh, uh, you know, so go to our website and hopefully you'll like some of our articles, you know, www.covertactionmagazine.com. And we're looking for new writers and uh, new ideas. Uh, so, you know, like Monica was saying, you know, an expose of the uh, murder of Moscone and Milk would be a good article <laughs> for us. So yes. and this kind of stuff, yeah, you know, these kind of uh, 
uh, stories and the, you know exposing the deep state. It's it's kind of the secret history of America in the 20th century. And if we could illuminate that, yeah, and relate to your other point, I think it's important to illuminate. And you know, the more people have a better consciousness and understanding of history, uh, the more people could be you know better attuned to uh, deep state intrigues in the present day and to mobilize you know political movements uh, that's more effective in the, in the present day uh, to challenge the corruption. Because I mean, what it is is, is the corruption of our political structure. And uh, yeah, we need a political move, an organized political movement to counter that and, and far more checks and balances. So the more people are aware of the history, uh, the more they can be empowered to act in the present. And I think that's a great value to studying the history. You know, I taught history for many years in school and I think it's very important and neglected uh, topic. Although, of course, they don't often teach, they don't teach the secret history. You they did. Kind of blind history. I did. It's yeah. only secret because they don't let people like you work there. <laughs> Wouldn't be a yeah, secret. Exactly. It's not. They, they want to keep it secret. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want it to be a secret. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. I think they could get away. Big T, they could get away with a lot less if people were just aware. And then the next step would be to fight back. That would be great. I don't think it's too late because the process still exists. I don't think it's too late. But I really do love your magazine, and I've always worried about the funding. I worry about how a professional like you can spend his time on something like that, which is probably hard to uh, get support from just because there's so much competition out there. People don't know quality from, you know, fly by night, but this is a very storied outlet, and um, I really respect it. So I do hope people will go to covertactionmagazine.com and check that out and check out the fundraiser and the articles. Okay. Thank you so much, Jeremy Kuzmarov, Managing Editor of CovertActionMagazine.com. This has been a live dive and I'm Monica Perez. 